Let's bow in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing of corporate worship, now for the opportunity to open your scripture and hear from you. We ask that you yourself would be our teacher, that your spirit would empower us to hear and understand and apply your word. Give us ready minds and ready hearts, and may you be glorified in our response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a very sad week for something north of half of the population of the United States of America. Many people believe that our presidential election was stolen and that now two Senate seats have also been stolen. Sitting presidents do not typically gain seats in the Congress and lose their own seat in the same election. The statistical anomalies are significant in both elections in question. And if it's true that fraud has taken place, it's not about Donald Trump. It's about us. Big tech and the media and the courts and the swamp have worked in perfect harmony, and there is not one thing we can do to reverse what has been done. But even if the elections were legit and if statistical impossibilities turned out to be possible after all, it's still a very sad week for biblical Christians. We have much to grieve about. We're faced with a future that will include even more of the things that we find repugnant. We've been promised even more glorification of the murder of infants, even more of a push to normalize sexual perversion, even more impingements on our freedoms, very specific promises related to that, and even more persecution of our faith. Now, I had thought that I would keep my own counsel, keep my mouth shut about these things. There's not much to be gained by complaining about evil. And I was working on the sermon, the next sermon in 1 Corinthians, and was almost finished with that sermon, and I had studied myself stupid, and so I said I'd do something else for a minute. And so I was working on the rest of the service, and I thought, we need to read something that would encourage us right now. And I thought about Psalm 37, and uh, so I had I put it into what was going to be the order of service, Psalm 37, 1 through 11, the Scripture reading, and I read it, and it started working on me. And then I realized how many Christians are grieving right now, and how deep the grief is as we consider what is probably going to change about our lives And I thought about friends we have in other countries who are dealing with other forms of government-sponsored evil all of the time. And I I personally need passages like Psalm 37 because I get pretty twisted up about some of this stuff. And just reading that the other day really encouraged me and reminded me that the Lord has told us what to do when stuff happens. And so I pushed that First Corinthians message aside, <laughs> and I changed the order of service to make this our text, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. I pray that it would encourage us today and that it would give us a vision for how to live whatever comes and whatever things might trouble us as they come. Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Scripture says, Do not fret 
because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now, this is a passage, just the first 11 verses. There are 40 verses in this psalm. I'm not going to keep you here that long. <laughs> I don't know that I have the strength to keep you there, here that long. But, but this, just this part of it is just packed with commands to be obeyed and promises to be believed. The rest of the psalm is more of the same, and I encourage you to meditate on that this week. Now, some of the commands in this portion of the psalm involve things that we must do. And some of them involve things that we must not do. And it's instructive that it begins with the stuff we're not supposed to do. First thing to do when evil is perpetrated on you and around you is to avoid reacting in the wrong way. And this psalm begins with that. And, and in the beginning of this psalm, there is an acknowledgement that there are evildoers and that they're doing evil things that you're not going to like, that are going to cause you grief. Here's the first command. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not fret is the part of that that is the command. And fret is, is a very broad word. It's another word for worry, but fretting is broader than what we would typically think about when we use the word worry. Now, if you're worried, if you're rubbing your hands together nervously, and, and you're running an endless string of what-ifs through your mind, that is fretting, that kind of worry is fretting. But if you're burning with anger over what people are doing around you, if you're intensely frustrated over what they're doing, if you're constantly stirred up inside, that's also under this umbrella of fretting. If you're, if you're angry, it's just an angrier version of fretting sometimes, an angry, angrier version of worry. And, and the anger might mask the worry in our minds so that we don't realize we're doing it. But it's all under this word fretting. Obvious worry, vexation, extreme frustration, burning anger that you just can't let go of. And the command is not to do that stuff when you see evildoers doing evil things. The second command is also in verse 1. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. 
Now, envy is a kind of jealousy. It's, it's a greedy desire to have what somebody else has or to be so, what somebody else is. It can include bitterness, bitterness and resentment toward that person who has what you don't have, or you maybe don't have bitterness toward that person, but you've got that lust for what they have. It's all, well, it can be any of that. And it's ironic that you can hate the evil and still be jealous of the guy who's perpetrating the evil. But we can all do it. When people cheat and lie and steal their way to the top, they're still at the top. And there's something in that that might appeal to you and make you envy. It might look pretty good sometimes. And you mind you, you separate the evil from some of the things that came along with it and think, well, I wish I had that. Maybe, maybe I want the power or the wealth or the influence or the ease that this other person has, but he, he got that the wrong way, and I'm not supposed to envy that or be jealous about it. First responsibility is to resist sinning in response to other people's sin. Do not fret. Do not envy. Now, we could all give, if we were in a Sunday school discussion, everybody could give an answer for why you shouldn't fret and you shouldn't envy. You know, it's wrong. It's sinful. Don't do that. It's easy to answer that. There's another reason in this psalm, though, that David gives us for not doing that. It's not quite as obvious. What David is essentially saying is there's not anything to envy. Don't envy that because it's a lie. It's shiny like fool's gold. In verse 2, he says, For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Well, there's nothing to envy in that. That's not what we want. Now, this is the first promise in this psalm. The evildoers will wither quickly. What evil people are doing is not nearly as fixed as they like to believe that it is. Their accomplishments will not last. Their power over you is not complete, and whatever they do have is not going to last. Their lives are going to wither and be gone very quickly. Whatever they have, it seems much more permanent than it actually is. When I moved to Texas to go to seminary, I received several interesting welcomes. One of them was, this guy says to me, we got two kinds of grass here in Texas, brown and watered. <laughs> and he was right. It's green in May, and that was brown a lot of the rest of the time, unless you watered it. There are a few things that meet their end more abruptly than grass does. And, and that's the illustration here. They're going to fade like that. It's going to be quick. You, you look, and the grass is lush and green and seems like it's going to last and last and last, and then you look, and it's gone. It's brown. It's dead. Now, somebody might say, these wicked people that I'm frustrated with seem to be getting away with it for a lifetime. And that's certainly true. How long did it take Castro to die? I mean, I remember 20, 30 years of thinking, he's going to die any minute. And he just kept right on. <laughs> and he was still in power when he did die. But 
from the perspective of a person who's going to spend eternity with our Creator, even that long, wicked life was over in the blink of an eye. It doesn't look fast from this side, but when we're looking back on it, we're going to go, that was quick. The Lord moved quickly. What, what is 80 or 90 years in the span of eternity? This is going to be over for the wicked, and there's nothing good for them after that. Evildoers, evildoers are coming to nothing, and when the change comes, it'll be sudden. Something to keep in mind when we're tempted to fret and envy. More commands come in verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord. I find that an interesting command. Most of the time we think about trust as being something that you, you've either got that or you don't. I, I trust him or I don't. You know, it's like, you, What do you do if you don't have that? We think that's it. You know, I, He doesn't trust, so he doesn't trust. That's the end of that. But to have a command to tell you to trust in the Lord would imply that you can obey this or disobey it. And that if you're not trusting in the Lord right now, there's something you can do about that so that you are trusting in the Lord. It puts the responsibility on us to obey. The word trust means to rely upon, to depend upon. It's a, it's a reminder that our hope is not in our circumstances. That's not where we're getting our comfort from. We're not dependent on how things turn out. Our trust in the Lord is not dependent on how things turn out. We trust that He knows what He's doing. Even when we don't understand, we have to be reminded sometimes of that fact, but then we do trust. And when we trust Him, evil things will not make us draw into a tighter and tighter shell of hopelessness and just shrivel up inside. Our trust in Him keeps us functional in hard times. And that relates to the next command in verse 3, which says, Do good. That command ought to be encouraging. That command means that it is possible to do good even when you fill in the blank. When is there a time you can't do good? Think about Old Testament Joseph. He did good as a slave, having been sold into slavery by his brothers. Then he did good as a prisoner, having been put in jail, falsely accused of rape, and put in prison without a trial. And if you don't have a trial, and you, you don't have a sentence, you don't have an end date. You're not going just 10 more years. You just figure you'll be here the rest of your life. And yet he did good. And then he did good as the second most powerful person on earth. Doing good doesn't require the circumstances to do anything. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, there's something good you can do. And the command is to trust in the Lord and do good. So you don't have to withdraw, you don't have to shrivel up inside, you don't have to be angry and frustrated about everything that's happening in the world. There's something good you can do, and whatever good there is within your grasp, do it. 
Here's another command. Dwell in the land. Now that had particular meaning to the Israelites. God had had brought them into the promised land. David was living in the promised land. All the Jews were living in the promised land at that time that he wrote that. The command is to live there. And it applies to us that just live wherever you live. Live your life wherever you are, wherever God puts you. If a tragedy happens where you live, live in the land. If the Lord moves you to another place, dwell in the land there. Live an exemplary life where God puts you. Here's another. Cultivate faithfulness. See my gardening friends in the room. You know what this means. It's an interesting word to put with faithfulness. It's actually the perfect word to put with faithfulness because you're not going to get faithfulness unless you cultivate it. And that word means a long-term commitment. You want to cultivate something, it's usually food that you have to grow in the ground. You've got to prepare the ground. That may involve bringing in all sorts of things that are not already there. You've got to clear something, and you've got to bring things that plants need kind of plants you want. When you get all of that done, you got to buy some seed and put that in the ground and water it and wait. And then you got to deal with weeds over and over and over and over again. And the bugs. you got to do something to keep the animals out that would eat that before you do. And then you got to, you really got to baby everything. You know, side dress it, fertilize it, weed it. Prune it, whatever it needs, you got to do it. Wait some more. Cultivating is thorough, careful, multifaceted work that is paying attention and making adjustments all the time for a long time. And you're commanded to cultivate faithfulness. It's the only way you can have it. It's going to take continual effort. There are going to be a lot of adjustments you have to make along the way. Constant reevaluation is required. Constant attention is necessary. But if you cultivate faithfulness, guess what? Faithfulness is what will grow. <laughs> you want tomatoes? You plant tomatoes. You baby tomatoes six months, <laughs> and you get tomatoes. You want faithfulness? Cultivate that, and it will come. Verse 4 has another interesting command. Delight yourself in the Lord. Get your mind around that. We're commanded to make ourselves delight in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord possible to become so focused on the problems and all things you need to do in response to the problems and what might come and and how Christians are supposed to deal with this and all the tasks that are going to be before us, that we might forget to even notice this command. And it's pretty intense. The Hebrew word here for delight means exquisite delight. 
Really delight yourself in the Lord. Make the Lord your chief delight. Take pleasure in the Lord himself. Find your enjoyment in him. Attach yourself to him in joyful gladness. That's what you're commanded to do. How on earth do you do that? How do you make yourself delight in something if you're not already delighting in it? It's not like you can just put it on your to-do list and check it off and go, okay, now we're going to do it. When I was a young young guy, there, were, there was a whole movement of people, and I think they got made fun of so much they stopped saying it. But people would have a problem, and they'd just say, well, praise the Lord anyway. I haven't heard that in a long time because that is weak. <laughs> people have given up on it. It doesn't work. You can't just say that and everything be okay. How do you make yourself delight? How do you go from indifference to exquisite delight? How do you go from weary frustration with everything else in life to exquisite delight in the Lord? Think about how you delight in anybody. I mean, this is a person. How is it that you come to have delight in some other person's company or friendship? How do you do that? It's always based on something you know and that you also like. Always. You find another person attractive. Maybe you like the smile. Maybe you like the eyes. Maybe you like the sense of humor or the intellect. There there are things that you know about the people you delight in and that you appreciate about them. You like it, and that's why you delight in the relationship. And so if you're not really delighting in the Lord right now, you need to know more about him. You need to be reminded some of the things maybe you have forgotten about him because everything about him is delightful. You know, we've all got our flaws and we have to take the good with the bad in our relationships with each other, but with him, it's all good. And so if we're not delighting in him, we just need to know him better and the delight will come. Study him. You will delight in who he is if you belong to him. If Christ has changed you, that delight will come back as you meditate on who he is. Of course it grows weaker at times. You become more distant at times in your relationship with the Lord. That happens to everybody. Remind yourself of what you know. Learn something new about your Lord and you will delight in him. There's another promise connected to that command. It says, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a promise. The Lord himself is going to give you what you desire. What if you desire something God's never going to bless? We all do that sometimes, right? But if the Lord is your exquisite delight, then uh, your desires are going to come a lot more in line with the kind of things he delights to bless. That's why he gives you what you want. It's never as fast 
It's often not as fast as you want. There is something in here about patience in a few places. But he does it. Your desires will become pleasing to him as you delight in him. Why, why wouldn't he bless that? And remember that this is a promise that's made in the context of evildoers doing evil things. This promise holds true no matter what's going on around you, no matter what everybody's doing, no matter what they're getting away with. If you truly delight in him, he's going to give you things that you are that you want, that you delight in, that you're thankful for. Some of it right now, some of it later. Here's another command in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way. I did a little digging into the Hebrew on this one. and You know, Hebrew is a very concrete language. Commit your way is very Western. I mean, we, we get that because we're Western, but it's, it's not real abstract, right? It's still a... I mean, it, it's an abstract idea, not a concrete idea. What, what does that look like? Give me a picture. How do I commit my way to the Lord? What does that mean? You just need some more concrete language, and Hebrew supplies that. <laughs> this command, literally from the Hebrew, translates, roll yourself upon Yahweh. Now, there's a picture. That's what I needed. I needed a picture. You are flat on your back. You can't even get up. Roll yourself on Yahweh. Flop over into the hand of your Lord, and you're going to be all right. That's what we're commanded to do in the face of evil. Here's another command. Trust also in him. So you're going to roll yourself onto Yahweh and trust him. It doesn't help to flop over into his hand and then complain and gripe and refuse to believe him. Trust means to rely on, to be convinced of his faithfulness, to depend on him, to expect good things from him, to be confident in him. Don't get closer to him just to doubt him more. That doesn't make any sense. Flop into his hand and trust him. And here's another promise. Roll yourself upon Yahweh and trust him, and he will do it. That's a promise. He will do it. It's a very general promise. In fact, that's a sentence I would never get past my editor. She would write on whatever paper I handed her, do what? In red ink. And rightly so. Most of the time, I mean, if you're going to write something like this, you need to mean to. If you're just tired and weren't thinking clearly, somebody else goes, um, you need to say what he's going to do. That's good writing. But there are exceptions. If you, if you do this on purpose, there's a reason. And the Bible often requires much more of its readers than any English teacher ever asked of it. Of his or her writers. So it, if you say this, he will do it, and you don't say what it is, then you demand of the reader 
to think about what it is. To ask that very question that would have been written on the paper, do what? Because the Lord did not inspire poorly written language, that's exactly what he wants you to do. He wants you to ask that question and answer it. What's he going to do? If I flop over into his hand and trust him, what's he going to do? He's going to do whatever's called for. This is as broad as it can possibly be because whatever is needed is what he's going to do. Whatever's good, whatever's right, whatever is in the best interest of his precious children, that's what he's going to do. He's not going to fail to have an appropriate response. He'll do what needs to be done. And we will find when we trust him that our confidence has not been misplaced. Whatever it is, he'll do it. But in the next verse, there is one thing that he will definitely do. Whatever else it might entail, he's going to do this. He's going to vindicate you who have believed. He's going to vindicate you if you have trusted him. While the wicked are fading quickly like the grass, the righteous are going to be vindicated quickly. It says in verse 6, He himself will bring forth your righteousness as the light. It'll be bright and clear. It'll be undeniable. Right now, the world mocks our righteousness legislates against our righteousness, litigates against our righteousness, calls us unrighteous, immoral, and unchristian for following the Christ of the Scripture rather than the caricature of Christ popular in the liberal culture. But in God's good time, your righteousness will be more obvious than the sun at high noon on a clear day. God's going to make it so. It says he's going to bring forth your judgment as the noonday. The Lord himself is going to show everyone that you judged rightly when you trusted him, that you judged rightly when you stood firm against the tide of the culture. He's going to bring it forth Bright and clear. It's going to be as clear as the brightest moment of the brightest day. So the commands and the promises are all jumbled together. They just keep piling up. And there's some review involved too. Look at verses 7 and 8. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Rest in the Lord. You've already rolled yourself onto Yahweh. You're trusting in Him. And now you, can, you rest in Him. It doesn't mean that you're going to be idle or passive. But it does mean that your trust in the Lord has a powerful effect 
on your frame of mind so that you're able to rest in him, whatever comes. And then it says, wait patiently for him. Oh, yeah, there's that patience part. Waiting is hard. But it's not just a command to wait. This is the way you wait. Wait patiently. It's not enough just to to endure. That's not the same as being patient. It's an attitude issue. You usually can't avoid waiting anyway. You can't make things happen before they happen a lot of the time, and so you got to wait. This is about how you wait. Wait patiently. And then it says, do not fret. Now, we've already had that one. Do not fret. Again, that's twice, because we've already forgotten, maybe. Because we can start fretting again without even realizing we are doing it. Because not fretting is really hard. Do not fret. God knows our frame, and so he repeats this one. And, and he knows that some of us are probably thinking, but they're getting away with it. <laughs> so he says, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, <laughs> because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. In other words, don't fret even when they're getting away with it. And then it says, cease from anger in verse 8. That's interesting because it does not say, do not be angry. Anger is not always sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger. And anger can be the right response to a lot of bad things that happen. Some of this ought to make you mad. Just don't stay there. Cease from anger. Don't let anger become a habit. Don't become an angry person. Anger is a reaction, and sometimes it's exactly the right reaction, but it needs to come to an end. So cease from anger before it consumes you. Then it says forsake wrath. Now wrath is where anger anger will take you if you don't cease from it. You'll start to think it's your job to foment and then take it out on somebody, maybe in your mind, maybe in your words, maybe in your actions. Forsake that. And then it says, do not fret. This is the remedial psalm. (laughs) Do not fret. Again, that's three. Because we thought we had this under control, but we didn't because we need to be told multiple times. And this time, the command not to fret includes a warning. It only leads to evil doing. Your fretting will never accomplish anything good. It will lead to evil doing. If I've counted right, that's 15 commands so far. More promises come in the next verses. Look at verses 9 to 11. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will not, those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. 
Evildoers will be cut off. That is a promise. God is going to solve the problem of evil. Their evil will not be perpetuated. They themselves will be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. That's a promise. David may have been thinking about the land of Israel where every Israelite had an inheritance. But he may have been thinking beyond that. And we can certainly apply this beyond that to the new heaven and the new earth where a possession awaits us. We have a portion that we will inherit. If you're among those who wait for the Lord, you will not be disappointed in your reward. It says, yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. That's a promise. Just a little while. Sometimes it seems like such a long time that we wait. It's not going to seem long when we're looking back at it. We've been rewarded and when they've been cut off, and you can't find them. They're not there. Once their end has come, it's all going to seem very short. Their rebellion will have been proven to be weak and short and pitiful. And they will not be in their place anymore. Then it says the humble will inherit the land. That's a promise. That's verse 11. But in verse 9, it said those who wait on the Lord will inherit the land. Humility and patience go hand in hand. Humility and trust in the Lord are both characteristic of those who will have an inheritance. And it says the humble will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That is also a promise. Does that mean you're going to be rich in this life if you're humble? Well, God can do that, and sometimes he does do that, but that's not what this promise is about. Not every faithful Christian is going to be rich in this life. God's in charge of the timing. He's in charge of of all of the details of your life, what you can have, what you can earn, what you can do. But even if you are rich in this life, There is a much greater reward awaiting you in the next if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have trusted him for your salvation, if you have believed the gospel that he died for sin once for all, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, if you've put your hope in that, you have an inheritance. You're going to inherit the land. You're going to have abundant prosperity. We can't even imagine the riches of heaven. You you can't even conceive. You think about what Jesus told us about heaven. We know what the pavement is made of. We can relate to that. And we know the stones that are in the walls. We can relate to that. And beyond that, he said, "You, you can't understand it. The pavement is gold. And the walls are built out of precious, me- uh, precious stones. 
and everything else is so lofty and so high, we have nothing to associate it with. We cannot understand it until we get there, and it's just lumped under this category of abundant prosperity. That's what you're going to have if you've trusted Christ. So 15 commands to help you respond to an evil world, nine promises, some of them conditional on obeying those commands. And that's just the first 11 verses. I encourage you to meditate on this psalm. Do the whole 40 verses and think about it. Our Lord is sovereign over our circumstances. We can trust Him. And He tells us just how to serve Him. And to do so in a way that does not require the circumstances to do anything. May we be greatly encouraged by his promises today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how how pointedly applicable it is every day, especially this day. Help us to embrace it and believe it and, and to live as we're commanded to live and to have the, the joy that comes to those who believe your promises. Be glorified in our response to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.